Guys, welcome back to the Relaxed Running Podcast. Tyson Popplestone here. I'm your host. Thanks for stopping by. You've stopped by on a really good day. And I know I've been saying this a little bit lately, but it just so happens that we've been getting some pretty cool guests. Today's guest is no exception. Now, before I tell you who he is and what he's done, let me tell you about how I got connected with him. So uh, this guy, his name's Chris McCormack. You might know him as Macca. He's a, he's a gun in the Iron Man world. I'm going to give you the details in a minute. I was nervous reaching out to him because I read his book a few years ago. I admired him from a distance in his triathlon many years ago. And I saw photos of a mutual friend of mine, Brenton Ford from Effortless Swimming, uh, had a few photos on his website with him and Macca. And I thought, hey, beautiful. What a great setup. These guys know each other really well. Um, I'll use Brenton as a segue into organizing this podcast. So I messaged Macca on Instagram. I go, Macca, friends with Brenton Ford. Would love to get you on the show. Now, I did that as a name drop. Uh, anyway, I caught up with Brenton the day after I sent him the message, and uh, Brenton goes, mate, I haven't even asked him on my show yet. I don't know him super well, um, so it was a little bit lucky that he didn't just tell me to go away, uh, both of them actually, Brenton and Macca, but it worked out really well. Now, Macca is an easy bloke to talk to. He's a storyteller. He's a fun bloke. He's a talent like it is kind of guy. This was honestly such a fun conversation. We had to cut it off after like an hour 15 because I told my wife uh, to come back in about an hour. It was really cold outside and I could see her after an hour 15 just standing on our patio freezing. She had our son in the carrier and I was like, mate, I'm about to get divorced if I don't let her back inside. So I had to end it with Macca, but I'm, I'm really keen to do a part two because I, I genuinely felt, and I think you noticed, we could have talked for hours and hours. It was a really enjoyable chat. Now, if you don't know who Chris Macca McCormack is, I've got a few notes here for you. He he started out as a distance runner. He wanted to be a marathon runner. He admired the likes of Dee Costello, Steve Monaghetti. Uh, he grew up as a swimmer as well, so he was a pretty good runner, pretty good swimmer. Uh, and one day, as an 18-year-old, beat Greg Welsh over, I think it was an aquathon. So if you don't know Greg Welsh, one of the top Aussie triathletes of all time, Greg Welsh said, mate, come on, come and give triathlon a crack. It was a funny story about what Macca thought triathlon was at that stage, but you can look forward to that one. He went on to win the Ironman World Champs twice, 2007 and 2010. He was a winner of the 97 ITU World Cup and 97 World Championships. Uh, Honestly, some of his winning streaks, some of his race styles, just some of the stories that this guy tells were, were just mind-boggling. So if you're wondering what a triathlete can teach us about running, the answer is a, a whole heap. He knows he's running well, but more than that, I was I was fascinated by his mindset. I was fascinated uh, just by his training. I wanted to know how it was that he did what he did so successfully. It was, it was a really great chat. I'm really excited for you to listen. If you do enjoy it, actually, I'm going to get my phone right now. Had a couple of reviews coming through for the podcast the last couple of weeks. Um, been really, really good and very generous. So if you've been enjoying the chat, leave us a review. This is uh, this is what MC 71 said, insightful and entertaining, which it's nice for my ego. It's a must-listen podcast for runners of all le- uh, levels. Good length of episodes so you don't lose interest. Great range of guests. Particularly enjoyed the recently... Uh, posted Emma Carney episode, such an inspiring athlete and coach, great stories, and yes, it's okay to be competitive, so refreshing. Also recommend the Jai Edwards, Matt Ramson episodes, and looking forward to hearing from Raph Bauer once again from over in WA. 
Another one from our great man, Dion Finocchiaro. We're going to get him back on the show soon. Listen to many running podcasts, but Tyson has a real kind way with a real way with words. I've just called myself kind. He didn't even say that. And communicating with his guests. He goes beyond the box of what topics are trendy and stumbles across some incredibly good stories from guests that you're going to struggle not to be inspired by. So, guys, if you're enjoying it, go over, leave a bit of love. I don't know exactly what it does, but I'm pretty sure it ranks us higher on Apple Podcasts, which means more people get to hear about Relax Running Podcasts. Good news for me. I hope it's good news for you as a fan of the show. Anyway, thank you for being here. I'm going to get out of your way and introduce to you the great man, Chris Macker McCormack. Awesome. Well, hey, just before we hit record, we we're laughing because you say, mate, it's been a while since I've been out training in the uh, the running scene. I don't know if I'm going to have too much to contribute, but I was saying that I was just as interested to pick your mind about mindset and triathlon as uh, as I was talking about running. And I did a quick tune up listening to uh, to Brad Beer's podcast with yourself a few years ago. And uh, as I said to you, I heard you mention Mona and Deke. And uh, just before we hit record, Troopy. So I thought like, we're in good company when it comes to this. So I reckon there could be uh, could be plenty to take away from the running Mount world Norwood, from you. All that old Malcolm Norwood, Pat Carroll days. <laughs> I used to buy Fun Runner magazine and live for it. It was awesome. It, that must have been a few episodes ago, actually, or a few magazines ago. I've never heard of the Fun Runner. Yeah, it used to be oh years ago. Fun Runner was the nineties. Used to flick to the back and find all the fun all the fun runs pre-internet mate back when it was raw and <laughs> was i didn't know there was a time where uh, where you couldn't get information off the internet yeah yeah it was yeah man that's funny hey um we were having a laugh before i uh before i hit record because you said you went to uh, to school with with troopy and you reckon he wasn't that flasher as a as a teenager no i, I used to run against him he was part of the victorian group and there was a uh, what was his name mcmahon steve mcmahon was the best victorian at the time and troopy was sort of um, probably the third or fourth best Victorian. He's a little smaller athlete, but he he always had that mongrel in him, but he wasn't the talent that he, he was always a talent. He was at national level, but he wasn't, he didn't show those flashes of brilliance, at least at national level at high school that he ultimately showed as a runner. But yeah, yeah he was, it's funny. The athletes you think are going to make it and go on to do amazing things. It's how, how I think Michael Power down then in Victoria was really, really strong and and uh, was that they were, they were a little bit. There was a really strong younger group than us. Me and me and Troopy are 73, 74, born, and there was that 1976, 77 group of athletes, Michael Power, and and uh, born then that were just amazing, like so strong. So, how serious were you in the running scene before you got across to uh, triathlon? Were you uh, running was the goal originally? I heard. Yeah, yeah, I wanted to be a marathon runner. Yeah, I, I was inspired by Deke. Deke was my absolute idol, and then obviously Monas came along. I remember watching. Um, Monas at the 1986 Edmonton Commonwealth Games in the marathon where he became third. I was we all tuning in to watch Dick Deke win. He won his second Commonwealth Games marathon that year. And, and Monas sort of came across for, for third. And then I tuned in at the 87 World Champs, Bruce McAvaney calling it. And that was in Rome. And Monas finished fourth in the marathon to Douglas Wakahuru. And there was Ahmed Salah and Jalindo Bourdin. And I was just, Fuck, that's what I want to do. I just want to be a marathon runner and... And, and be like Monas. He was Monas and Deke. It was just an amazing time. We had depth across the board then. As you know, even back here in Australia, you had Johnny Andrews, um, Jamie Jamie Harrison, New South Wales-based athletes. And you had the old, um, that old brigade. There was Steve Poulton. And there was a really good New South Wales group. And and the group, they were about five or six years older than I was. Some of them probably 10. And they we used to run with them as kids. But they used to breed this whole interstate rivalry about new south wales versus victoria 
and really for us in running, Victoria was the one that was, it was immense satisfaction out of beating Victorians. I didn't really have much animosity towards South Australians or Queenslanders. I didn't really think about, but there was that real core Victorian running base out of Ballarat and Melbourne and that, that New South Welshmen were very intrigued on dethroning if we possibly could. So that was really instilled into me, but Deke and Mon has been two Victorians it was always, you know, it was Jamie Harrison and Paul Arthur and the group up here that were that were driving the younger generation of us to try and follow in the footsteps of those guys and dethrone them. But Victoria just had so much depth. Man, it's funny being on the other side of that coin because I remember growing up as a junior, looking up at Sydney and going, all right, you know what? I felt that same animosity towards, <laughs> towards you guys. I'd be on the start line. And you guys just seemed to produce quality athletes like there was always some random coming out of perth or some random coming out of adelaide or just some random coming out of somewhere but there always seemed to be a big chunk of athletes from victoria and a big chunk of athletes from new south wales who were always bound to to put up a pretty good fight but what was your story what was your introduction into the running world man was that was that part of the family blood or how did you find your way into wanting to be a marathon runner originally yeah well my 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 father grew up in the eastern suburbs of sydney like bondi and uh when he had us, the boys, he was, we lived in small places. So he moved to the south of Sydney, which is down in the Sutherland Shire. And we lived on the, our back doorstep was the National Park, like endless, the biggest national park in Australia. So we used to mountain bike ride and motorbike ride. And my dad had given up cigarettes. So as part of his quitting cigarettes, he used to run just every time. So I used to go running with him. So I fell into running just by going running with my dad. It was just absolutely natural. I had no idea I had any, any, talent in it we just used to run through the forest and, and i used to ride so we're very very active and then it's just a perfect breeding ground and around here because there was a strong running community with st george running club and and sutherland running club based on this national park there was such a core big group of olympic former olympians and runners that lived here so it was you joined the sutherland cross country club where there was eight olympians that had been to olympics running so as a young 10 and 12 year old kid you're exposed to to some amazing mentors and and I just I just got swept up in it I thought it was cool and obviously you get the more you work at something you get better and I just run with my dad and I got a running coach and and all my friends became in running and and it was all around that beautiful time of monas and deeks and so there were such great mentors to look up to so I um yeah I just I was I loved it loved it and I was you know sort of came out of that 84 Olympics I was 11 I watched that and thought wow and Deke finished fifth in the marathon and then obviously had uh, we had the Seoul Olympics in 88, but between, you know, I'm sort of at that perfect age of 10, 11, 12, you start to become relatively impressionable. And I, I sort of really pivoted towards those guys. I looked up to those guys to really want to emulate what they were doing. So I bought Deke's book. I think every runner back then had, Deke had multiple books, but he had the Green <laughs> Deke book, which used to be the book that told the story of all his marathons and how he ran them in 5K segments. And then we had the, we used to call it the Red Deke book, which was more a how to train book. And I, I lived vicariously through those books. Like I just, everything that he did, I, I did. I molded my whole t- training week on Deke's training week philosophy with Sunday long runs, Wednesday long runs, and it just became my life. I think the rest of Australia's done that as well. I laugh with guests on this show because I reckon the uh, I reckon the training schedule of the average distance runner in Australia hasn't changed since 1974. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I think it's all inspired by that red book. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. So, mate, were you um, were you running around on the track or what was your event? The cross country. See, I see yeah, you so- now as uh, in hindsight as the ultra distance man, but I know uh, I know the origins when you're 11 or 12, you're trying to find your way into distance running. You got to sort of you work your way up. 
Yeah, no, I won a couple of national, I won five national titles, but uh, my father coming from Bondi was a, was a, and that's probably how I got into triathlon was I grew up in the surf club. So even though I was a runner in summer, we did surf club. So my dad was a beach bum, loved it, surfed. And, and so we always surfed, but in the summer he was, he didn't want to go and sit out at athletics tracks at 40 degree heat. He's like, right, we'll be active. Let's go to the surf club. You can do other, we'll do cross country in the winter and surf club in the summer. So I definitely had that on off switch, which it, I remember every post, every cross country season, I used to think that's it. I'm doing track this year. I don't care about surf club. And then, you know, dad had pushed me across the surf club and then halfway through the surf club season, I'd be like, that's it. I'm just doing surf club this year. I'm never coming back to cross country. <laughs> so it was this real, I just enjoyed competition. I enjoyed that that blend and uh because of that i could swim so most runners couldn't swim so um it was just by luck triathlon didn't really exist at that point but i used to rate basically race the pulsar quartz gains which my last track race in australia would be late november and sometimes you get early january if nationals were early but i never really raced a lot of track nationals but always cross country and uh chs i was a public school so i used to do chs cross country then all schools or, or clubs and loved it just always representing in cross country. So my 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 group of training partners here, back in the old guys might remember was you know James Barker. He was a great New South Welshman. He's probably forty four now. Um, Tony Orcello, who's passed away. He was a great runner. Trent Wood was a great runner. Um, and you know the older older brigade for me was Steve Poulton, Paul Arthur, Michelle Dillon was in my my age group, and Michelle became a triathlete as well. But it was a really, really good crew of athletes. Clinton Barter, who wrote Julian Painter. They were all good runners, national champions across, across uh, you know, everything from track to cross country. But for me, I was the cross country guy. I just, I just loved cross country. Mate, I had no idea how quality a runner I was talking to. So I was using this as a little bit of a foundation to move into the real stuff. But five national titles, I reckon that puts you up there as one of the most prolific runners I've had on the show. <laughs> I'm not sure how many titles Monner's had, but uh, he didn't mention it in the podcast last week that he had five. Five could be a record. No, they're schoolboys. They're, they're, they're under 16. They're not the elite ones. We're talking age specific here. I didn't win any. I, know, I won no elite national. I won a uh, an open state title here over, and I won novice. And but. Uh, by then I'd, I'd pivoted to triathlon and that was just purely by, by luck and chance. Yeah. So I was going to ask you about that. So like with such success at an early age, uh, it, it is interesting that you decided to make that transition across to the, uh, the three-legged sport. So what was the inspiration to, to move you across from a, a pretty successful junior crew with five titles into the, uh, into the swim bike run scene? Well, I got, I got a running scholarship. So I finished school 19. 90, went to uni college 1991 and I took a running scholarship at New South Wales Uni, the Ben Lexon scholarship. And uh, I went to the university. So then I was training with the uni and that was specifically run focused. And it was at uni that triathlon in, in, in New South Wales was really starting to become pretty cool. It was in the early nineties, Greg Welsh lived here and there was races and because triathlon and surf clubs was so closely integrated and I was such a big member of the surf club. You know, a lot of people go, how'd you find from running to triathlon? But I, I, as I was telling you earlier, I used to do surf club in the summer. So the triathlon scene came really merged out of the surf club scene here in New South Wales. And uh, I got talked into, I had a, a race with Greg Welsh who had just won the world championships in triathlon in 1990. And at that time I'm 18, 17, 18 years of age. And uh, we did a race together and I, outran Greg over 10 and uh it was on on the beaches of Cronulla and after we went for a swim because it was relatively hot and he's like oh shit mate you swim all right have you ever thought of triathlon have you ever thought of doing it and I said well I thought triathlon was 
modern pentathlon. I said my exact words to him was, I can't ride a horse. Mate. Like, <laughs> And, uh, and he's like, no, triathlon is swimming, biking and running. And then he, he, he was telling me about it. And then I started tuning in and seeing these duathlons and Adam Joyce and all that like, shit. And, and they look pretty cool. And I remember the junior category back then, you could, you know, you'd win actually, you know, anyone who grew up in running, you won the little here in New South Wales, a little tiny silver and gold little coin with no engraving on the back or a little ribbon. And that was, mate, you killed to get one of those. And in triathlon, you... I'm turning up these triathlons and the, the first junior would win 500 bucks. Like I was working at Sizzler for 70 yeah. bucks a week thinking $500. Like that's a shit ton of money. Yeah. Like, and so that's sort of, I thought I'll do a couple of these. And a lot of them were like back then biathlon on swim run events. And they were at Coogee or Bondi. And you used to race Guy Andrews and Guy Leach and all these surf life-saving guys. They used to swim really good, but I mean, they'd run, they'd run 35 minutes for 10 K. So they would, they would swim like three minutes into you, but you drop a 30 minute, 10 K you fucking kill these guys. Right? Like, <laughs> and there's 500 bucks. I'm like, give me another. That's how I, I sort of went from triathlon, started buying the, went from running, started buying these triathlon magazines just because I was at university thinking this beats, beats working at Sizzler. If I can race <laughs> these every weekend, I can, I can give up Sizzler and I'm still being active and fit and still meet my running needs. But that's sort of how I pivoted across. Yeah, what did you say the event was where you beat Walshie? Because that's, uh, I tell you, he's a better bloke than me. Because if an 18-year-old bloke came out and beat me when I was world champ over my event, I feel like I'd be doing my best not to encourage him, but just to steer clear of him and tell him to stay in his own sport. So it's, a, first of all, a great effort by Walshie to uh, give you a little bit of encouragement. But, but what was the story there? Because that sounds like a pretty huge day out at the office. Yeah, it was our cross-country club. So he used to come back from um, from overseas. He was based out of the Sutherland Shire and he raced our cross-country. Our cross-country club was so strong. Like, I mean, I remember back in the day, like literally every age group from under 14, men and women, there was a, a national medalist or a, it was a very strong club and, and used to move up. Even at 18, I could have raced juniors, but I used to race the Open 10, you know, and you'd have Paul Arthur and a lot of these great runners come along. And, and every now and then, when Paul would be somewhere else or Steve Poulton or one of the, one of the strong uh, New South Welshmen, I'd, I'd be able to get a, a race winner down a local club. And, and I used to always feel it was funny because Greg Welsh was the first person I ever knew that ran in sunglasses. Now sunglasses are <laughs> back in the day. Runners were pure, mate. You didn't, <laughs> you did not wear sunnies. And, and so he used to have these big sunglasses. And I used to think I've got to beat this bloke. Like what a wanker. At the time. <laughs> and then, uh, then he became an amazing influence on my life. He was the one that really pushed me into the triathlon into the triathlon ranks. He's like, kid, you, you swim good and you run good. Like you, how do you bike ride it? And I've been riding to school, like I rode. So he, he pushed me to get a bike and sent me to a bike shop. And really Greg Welsh was a massive influence in those early years. Just, when I say influence, he wasn't standing by me writing programs or anything, but he he gave me the push or made me consider a new sport where I was so obsessed. You know, you're talking 99, we just come off the Auckland Commonwealth Games. Sebastian Coe had just been down here. Like Sebastian Coe was my idol. Like he'd just been down here at ES Marks. I'd interviewed him for our, for our club. And uh, I was a mega fan, like of these guys, you know, Abdi, Billy Abdi, like all these big runners. And I just wanted to go to... Uh, you know, I was thinking Atlanta Olympics potentially as a as a marathon runner, and um, and it was right at that time that I was that Greg was sort of pulling me this direction. And and at that time, it, triathlon was not in the Olympic Games, so it was definitely a decision around a different sport, different goals and objectives, with um, World Championships and potentially Ironman being the two two goals that you chase within that sport. And that's whether 
and he really got me into you know tuning into the old galaxy tv watching these events overseas sort of like nowadays it's probably kids don't realize but it's sort of like what the tour de france was back then and back in the 90s i had a 30 minute segment on the tour de france on sbs every night right and you used to watch it and i was enthralled by it and it was the same with triathlon you get these little 30 minute shows or bruce mcavaney do a little 30 minute show and we'd live off these vhs videos of these events and i thought man this is actually pretty cool like it's in europe it's a very different different looking life than i'd envisaged of of going doing london marathon or or, or new york marathon and because if we all recall, 1989, Monas went to London. He ran 2.906 in the marathon. He was beaten by Douglas Wakahuru in, uh, in a sprint finish in the London Marathon. And Bruce McAvaney caught it with Chris Wardlaw in the middle of the night. And I sat up all night watching this marathon. And it was, yeah, Wakahuru, Monas, and Ahmed Salah, uh, one, two, three. And those, that was the 1987 Worlds, 19, no, 1988 Olympic Games was those same athletes. Monas was four. And so I was... I was keen on being, of experiencing a London or experiencing a New York and just winning one of those major marathons, which I look at now, it's never going to happen. But, you know, as a kid, you dream just wanting to be, to be that. And, and Monas was just such a incredible mentor, not mentor, because he never really mentored me, but such an incredible person to look up to. He was a, a brilliant man, generous of his time, you, you know, like for young people, just a, the perfect ambassador for for running for any young kid he was just a mm. gentleman an absolute yeah. legend and and on a, a high race performer yeah no it definitely is it's funny you say that i hadn't seen him for about eight years and i had him on the podcast last week and he's talking about uh he's like mate this is how we became mates through the running scene i was thinking far out i think we're closer than i ever realized but i think what was going on <laughs> is he's just that encouraging personality where he just yeah. wants to see people um you know younger than him older than him around him just do well in whatever it is that they're doing and he's uh He's got that ability not only to inspire through his running, but actually through his through his words. And and when you're a bloke like him, and as you're saying, you've competed at the level that he has, yet he's one of those blokes that you just start to tune into. When he speaks, you sort of listen, especially when it's about running. But it's interesting hearing you talk about the uh, the inspiration you got from races like that because. I know the early nineties, I reckon every triathlete was on the back of my wheat fix box. It was a little bit of a, uh, a little bit of a, a highlighted sport. I would have guessed I was a young fella running around back then. So I can't remember super clearly what the two scenes were like or how they differed. But my guess looking back was uh, in the nineties, triathlon seemed to be at its heyday, especially in Australia yeah. in comparison to the, uh, even with the quality athletes like Mona running around, I guess the, uh, the allure of a sport like triathlon probably stood out a little bit more and, as you say, when they start backing it up with some paychecks, it makes it a pretty uh, a pretty tough decision just to decide that you're going to uh, you're going to run around for a little small silver medal rather than that five hundred dollar paycheck in a sizzler work week. Without question, it was it was the perfect time because you can if you recall on the surf club scene they had the Uncle Toby Super Series with the Guy Andrews, the, the Guy Leeches, the Trevor Hendys, and that was a massive summer series in australia and and what I, I think we benefited from the fact that australia is very football heavy so the winter months forget sport unless it's football you're getting no tv time but in the summer months all those things are all those codes are done so the networks were looking for sports to stick on television and triathlon got swept up in that uncle toby super series we brought, they formed a what a series called the formula one um to his blue series um which was a live televised series it was launched in 1994 so i was just turned 20 so this i just come into the sport i done world juniors as a triathlete i was a really good runner uh, i was at university trying to stay keep my running scholarship so they were always making sure i wasn't going too far down this triathlon triathlon route and showing i did what i needed to do for the university but that 
the, the announcement of the Tui's Blues series and the, and the big money that was coming in and the live television. When you're a 20-year-old, you're thinking TV, sport equals chicks. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's, that's simple mathematics, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. People are going to know who I am if I get in this series. So that was when I was like, I've just got to get on the TV and I'm going to be like Trevor Hendy. And so every young triathlete at that point became really, really serious. And that was off the back of the, the sport just got – we were – beneficials benefactors to the fact that it worked for television it was new and engaging it had a big sponsor in 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 twoies and then it became st george bank for many years and we had this series of racing around the world and by 19 if you're 1993 sydney won the olympic bid or 90 end of 93 here and there was a lot of discussion at that point about triathlon going into the olympics and um so i think they they made that announcement in end of 95 so it was all by that point, we were well and truly swept up in, uh, I, I re- definitely pivoted because there was a national series here. There was some structure to triathlon and it was no longer, no longer sort of this Mickey Mouse sport. I always tell people it's a little bit like telling, I remember telling my dad I wanted to be a professional triathlete. It'd be like telling your father now you want to be a professional Spartan racer. It's <laughs> the same sort of, it was very new and people were like, oh, really? What do you do? You jump over obstacles. And back then I was like, what do you do? You swim and then what? And then yeah, where do you store your horse? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I was sort of wet trap. Now everyone sort of knows what a triathlon is. But back then it was very, it was very big in America and Europe. But here in Australia, it was starting to, to take that grounding and that foundation. And I think the, what Australia, the Australian triathlon system benefited from was there was a lot of content from overseas that we were able to lean on that we still do to this day with Mark Allen and Dave Scott. And these, they still talk about this race in the eighties in Hawaii. There was five people in it, but it's a very big race, but they had enough of this history. Americans have a great way of packaging a sport and telling them it's their sport. And, and the straight, and we got swept up in that. And that's what got us into the Olympics and the national, the international system was, was put in place in the world cup series. And yeah, it just went zoom. Yeah. yeah. So 18, 19, you'd pretty much fully transitioned across. And that was the, uh, that was the new sport. Was it? Yeah, but uh, I ran my last nationals in 91 and then 92, I pivoted to triathlon. 93, I, I raced triathlon at World Juniors, yeah, by that point, which I travelled to Europe. And that was when I first saw there was a professional element. It was the first time I'd left Australia as, a, as an athlete and we went to Manchester in the UK for the World Juniors. It was the World Championships, but the Junior Worlds were there as well. And I got picked up post that to go and race in France at a, a, a club that tri- how triathlon works unlike running in europe there's a club structure sort of very similar to football so you get the contract to come and race for a club a french grand prix and you'll do eight races in a season for them and they'll pay you a salary and 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 so i got picked up after world juniors moved to a little town called uh, axe-le-mont and um and mate loved it like i was like man this is me like i'm a pro athlete this is unreal and my dad blew up he said get your butt home finish university you got to finish. So I came back, finished uni and became a pro 1995, moved to Europe and, and chased the, chased the season, chased the series, chased, chased the dream, I guess. Yeah, man, that's pretty unreal. So it sounds like the, um, like the transition. Uh, I know when you, when you look back with hindsight, it can make some of the big jumps sound very smooth and very small, but it sounds like it was a really quick transition to being a very good runner to a world-class. I don't know if you were just a world-class junior triathlete at this stage or a world-class triathlete, but it must have taken a few people uh, a few people by surprise. Did it just seeing this big Aussie bloke out there now winning these races who they, they hadn't heard of sort of 18 years earlier? It's a, it's a pretty quick move across to a, uh, a fully-fledged professional athlete. Yeah, well, a lot of the, the advantage I had, as I said, was most runners can't swim. Mm. So that's what Greg 
saw. I was a really good runner, but I'd grown up in swim squads as a kid. My dad was a surf clubby. So we grew up, all my brothers, we were the kids that got dropped at swimming every morning at 5.30 a.m. when we were young. Right? Yeah. So I could always swim. And uh, the first race I ever did, I the first triathlon, we, we were so raw. Like triathletes wear wetsuits because they make you swim quick. But coming from surfing, wetsuits are for warmth right so i remember going to our first my dad drove me down to wollongong south of sydney first ever 1992 um first triathlon ever i'd done a few duathlons run bike runs but this time i was doing my first triathlon and we got there and we saw all these triathletes in wetsuits so my dad i went i went and checked the water temperature i'm like it's not that cold <laughs> i was like it must be cold out in the middle so we put our, our surfing wetsuit on like, we had no idea we were muppets we're completely out of muppets and I swam, I chafed up and I was like way back in the swim in the junior category and it was non-drafting back then. It was 40K bike ride and I'm riding my bike with clip-on bars. But I ran the fast run. I think I ran 31 and a half off the bike, which oh. for a triathlete, most triathletes back then were running 35 minutes, like the 34 minutes, like Greg Welsh had run 33. And so I ran through and I won the junior category. And I remember going off with my dad. I won a trip to New Mia. But everyone in Triathlon Australia had never heard of me. It was my first ever triathlon. They thought I cheated because I had the fastest run time uh. by about a minute. And so they thought I'd cut the run course. Or So I got a phone call at home um, and they, because I'd won a trip to New Mia for two. So me and my brother were going to go to New Mia. That was, that was the prize. Like it, not, not like athletics where you won a little silver medal. <laughs> I won a trip for two to New Mia for winning this triathlon. As a, it was unreal. And um, then they rang me and they were challenging, you know, asking me all these questions. And I thought they were going to take this medal off me. Oh, this, this prize off me. I said, look, man, I'm the Australian champion runner. Like, speak to Greg Welsh. He's the one who told me to do this. He's like, oh, you know Greg Welsh. I said, mate, he's the guy that told me to do triathlon. And, mate, you're not getting your prize back. I won, fair and square. Tough luck. Get lost. And I hung up. And that was how, that was triathlon. My first ever dealing with triathlon Australia. <laughs> quite a hostile relationship, our whole. And then they ultimately after, you know, rang me back and pulled me into the into their programming they had it was that was sponsored by Cadbury back then so they had a Cadbury junior elite program where you got fully funded like I'm as a runner it was just a different time I mean as a runner we'd have barbecues and that to raise money to go to Pan Pacific Games or you know what I mean like yeah to go to places we'd have chicken raffles and stuff at the, at the club triathlon had money I remember getting picked for the junior worlds and 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 you got selected and it's over in we're going for a month to europe and we're going to do these races and then and the first thing my dad was like who's paying for that mate i'm not i don't have that much money to send you to europe for a month i said dad it's all paid he said what do you mean it's all paid i said this triathlon australia pays for everything you know like we couldn't believe it it was just so it was a lot of that made the transition a lot easier and i just had a big run and, and it was a different time like you see the triathletes today my generation and probably the generation one generation after me we transitioned from one sport. You're either Craig Walton was a swimmer, Miles Stewart was a bike rider, and we learned the other two disciplines. Young triathletes now are growing up as triathletes. So their swim technique is flawless. They're, what they're doing is, is unbelievable. Like the modern day triathlete is, is always, they give the perfect example of say Javier Gomez is Olympic silver medalist. You know, this guy runs a 28, 28, 20, oh my 10K, God. fresh 10K, but he's, He's a swimmer. This is what I, try, I always argue with with runners. I'm like, they're like, oh, 28, 20 is not quick. I'm like, yeah, but mate, he's a swimmer. You, you, you're missing the whole point of this comment. He swim. He would have made the Olympic final in the 1500 meters with Kieran Perkins in 1996. So I'm like, mate, you've got to understand what these athletes are doing now. They're they're they're, they're distance between the best guys, 
is getting they're closing that gap, but their their ability to do the three disciplines flawlessly are, are remarkable. So it's a completely different animal now. But I was I was fortunate. I was one of those transitioning. I was in that generation where most athletes had a flaw, and my strength was I was sort of the first one that was close across all three disciplines and was able to capitalize on that. Yeah, I always loved it. I think I must have been that in that original, well, maybe uh, not quite the original crop, but as a junior, about 13, I was doing triathlon as well. And I was just lucky that the, the swim when you're 13 is about 200 meters. So you're in the water for about four minutes. And then yeah, I'll yeah. get to the run, the 3K at the end and feel like an absolute hero because I would make up that couple of minutes that I couldn't swim in the run and come back and, uh, and, and just think I was a god. But mate, to run 31 and a half off a bike, I can only imagine it's that feeling magnified. And I think there would have been a couple of girls watching that race to uh to give you a little bit more of a strut as you finish. But yeah, was that a was that a pretty universal thing in the triathlon world at that stage to see you? Wouldn't it just been triathlon Australia going, mate? Is this guy has this guy taken a wrong turn? Nearly everyone watching the race would have been like, hang on a second, like this is unheard of. This is this is not how you are uh, how you run a, off a bike ride. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I think they were, they were shocked and then. I think they were excited that they had a big runner because Australia at the junior level back then had these, a lot of surf club kids, a lot of swim bikers that didn't have runs. So uh, I was the first sort of junior that came along with a big, you know, in that age bracket with a big run. And, you know, they always say in triathlon, you run for the dough. Like it's mm. the swim and the bike set everything up, but the run is what you need to be able to deliver because that's what you finish with. And um and there was myself and you know, Greg Bennett was coming. Craig Walton was a, a unbelievable Tasmanian, massive swimmer, massive biker. Um, and that was our generation. And we were, we were sort of closing that gap on our ability to do things, but ability to do the three disciplines very, very well. But my strength was definitely my run. I was the first guy to, to break 30 minutes off the bike, which was uh, for 10K, which was a big thing in triathlon. Now they do it. Now they break 29, right? But back then- Is that right? Break, oh, yeah, man. Uh, mate, oh yeah, they, they are. Alistair Brownlee's well, Hayden Wiles made the New Zealand um, Olympic team for running for ten and five. Like, like he's a national champion. Like he's a gun. Like that is hard to fathom, isn't it? That's in Alex Yee, the young kid for, for Great Britain right now for the running purist. Alex Yee's run a 13, 16, 5K. Sebastian Coe is trying to get him to stay in athletics. I want him to as well. Yeah, he's he's like I'm doing triathlon. Like I and he he may win the 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 Tokyo Olympics. He just won the test, the, the Leeds WTA, the World Cup event in Leeds, decimated them on the run. He's had a bit of a fragile swim. But my Al Alistair Brownlee ran 28-20. He was sick of all the runners saying, oh, what was the run short? He's like, that's it. Went to a track meet in Stanford, raced all the best, and he finished second in the track. Actually won the track meet, but all the runners ran 28-20. Like, I mean, legitimate athletes, man. That like, is insane. That is insane. My triathlon knowledge needs improvement because I honestly, there's Australian, uh, there's Australian runners now who I would consider top Australian runners who they would have a, they might run 28 and a half. And I go, Oh my God, isn't he in form? That was disgusting. Now we've got a, a Stu McSwain. I don't know how much you follow the Australian circuit at the moment. He's our, he's our best 5k runner. Now he's run, he, he's capable of breaking 13, I think, but he's run 1305. Um, another one of my good mates has run 1314. It's just terrifying to think there's blokes that can do that but they can also swim and bike ride. It's just, yeah, yeah. it's weird. It's almost strange that you, well, I guess when you can swim and bike, I don't know how much that prize money is still going well in the triathlon scene. It's maybe no surprise that they're, they're sticking to that yeah. sport, but that's, um, it's just incredible to get your head around. And what do you got to, I always say, and I realize it now I'm older, especially knowing a lot of the swimming Olympians and the running guys. Now you just don't get, 
the difference in that that last five percent improvement, which is which is a single discipline focus, that you're just getting more of that volume in. You, you can't get that volume in as a as a as a three discipline athlete. So swimmers are swimming 80, 90, 100k a week, right? Same as runners running a bit more than that. But a triathlete swimming 40, right? So you, you, that that big volume of work, that's the difference between swimming 1440 like Grand Hackett and swimming 1505 like Javier Gomez. Sure, it's 25 seconds. It's 50 metres over 1500 in the swimming pool. But there's 60K a week difference of volume of work to get there. That, as we know, the, those marginal gains as you get better is, is the hardest thing to do. And it's the same on the running side. They're, they're just not getting the consistent volume. They're getting the, the aerobic work out of their bike and swim but you're not getting that, that efficiency and that running that comes with, with a little bit more volume. And that's where they, they try and balance this fine line and they're getting really close to, to I, I think, the perfect triathlete at the moment. And what they're doing is remarkable. Yeah, it's funny because you still hear from time to time. And I think I was in this conversation at the end of my running career thinking, okay, well, I'm a pretty good runner. Maybe I'll just uh, make that move across to the uh, the triathlon and just tear it up there. But you have no idea or maybe uh, in your naivety, you have no idea of the quality of runner and bike rider and swimmer that you're coming yeah, yeah. up against, but that's uh, that's sort of blown my mind. But um, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to start doing some more research and, and reach out to some of these triathletes for some more running advice. Yeah, yeah some really good. <laughs> Hayden, I can send you some really good runners. Hayden Wilds, uh, they're just so raw and young and 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 they have no barriers, right? They just they, they have no pre- preconceived. Oh, that's a quick time. I'm like, dude, that's a really quick time. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I just ran three k in seven fifty eight. I'm like. <laughs> Quick, dude. Yeah, like, yeah, like, That's very impressive. Yeah. Mate, so you, you were saying, sorry, I've, I've taken you down a random rabbit hole, but this is what I was saying. They're the most fun to go down sometimes because there's so much information that just came out of that sort of blown my mind. But um, uh, we were before I took us down there, you were telling me you just moved over to France. You'd, uh, you'd been picked up by the team. So you were racing. You were racing around Europe at that time. Uh, with like a core group of guys and it was so that was pretty much the beginning of your your international career where you're going all right this is this is my thing this is legit I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna take this I'm gonna take this under my wing and just go with it yeah it was sheer chance so as I said I got selected for the Australian team the Australian team flew out of Sydney a race for world championships were in Manchester the UK mid-August August 15 so we got in there late July oh you know 20th of July we did a couple of races in in with the Australian team so you're flying exactly like athletics you're elite men, elite women, junior men, junior women. Um, and we traveled around Europe. We based in Bolton in the UK, race world champs. And I, I had the world champs one and I ended up hitting hands and it's a big story in triathlon. And I ended up getting beaten, got second. And, um, what was and it everyone, in the home straight? Yeah, I was celebrating and I got passed <laughs> by, a, by a Swiss guy. And, uh, so every junior in the triathlon Australia right now gets still that story, run to the finish line. Don't be a dickhead like Maka. And, um, <laughs> And so because of that race, I got picked up a French club. And, oh, look, why didn't you come and race for our club? And I'm like, oh, I've got to go back to uni. And uh, they said, oh, we'll give you, we'll pay you a thousand, back then, a, a thousand Deutschmark or a thousand Deutschmark, uh, uh, which is a thousand Australian dollars a week. I'm like, a thousand bucks a week? Fuck, I'm done, mate. I'm going. I'm like, <laughs> in. I rang, and so back then it was pre-mobile. I rang my dad. So I'm, Dad, I'm deferring uni for, and I remember him blowing up on the phone, but the money ran out in the payphone. Back then it was like, there was no internet stuff. So it's just like, all right, I'll speak to you in a couple of months. And, uh, and I flew to France and started racing for this club. So back when you race for a club, you, I left the Australian team. Now I'm on my own. And uh, I moved into France with a bunch of French guys that, from juniors and, 
and then we just traveled around France and it was my first time in France in the Alps and we're living up on the Swiss border and uh, it was unreal. I was racing these club races and with my uniform on and getting paid a grand a week. What mate, I was 19. Like I'm, uh, I'm thinking thousand bucks a week. Like I said, I was getting 70 bucks a week at Sizzler. Like, I mean, I thought this is my life. I want to be a pro. This is it. And then they gave me a contract for the following year. But when I flew home, my dad's like, no, nope, you're finishing university. So you're not going back to it. So I had one more year of uni. So I deferred 94 and didn't race. And I gave my contract to another Australian, Greg Bennett, who went across to race for the club. And so in 94, I finished uni, graduated at the end of 94. 95, I was still racing in Australia. Australia. But now I was working. I took a job at Bankers Trust. And I hated it, man. I just wanted to get back to Europe. But I thought I'd missed my window of opportunity. No club's going to take me. They don't even remember me. When you're a kid, one year feels like an eternity. Mm. And, and I had some great racing locally and then plucked up enough money to, to quit my job. And, and I just moved to Europe and, and chase it. That was um, the beginning of, of 95. So what was the relationship like with your old man at that stage? I guess at 19, you're probably, you're probably still living at home, were you? And he's probably got your best interest at heart trying to make sure that you're secured for your future because he's doing what he thinks is the, oh, you're doing what he thinks is the equivalent of a Spartan race. <laughs> Despite how well it's going, you're over in Europe. He's probably not seen a whole lot. So like, was there, was there a little bit of tension? Was there a little bit of bitterness going on there or how did you navigate that 12 months? Yeah, I think he was disappointed when it, with the, like, I think he, I remember being very, very nervous of telling my father because my father was adamant that the three, his three boys would be educated. He didn't have an education, so he got that. And he and, and I guess every father wants their kids to be on the right path, right? And so I had a job at Bankers Trust and I was in finance and I'd just done a commerce degree, majored in accounting, and he was happy. I hated it, but dad was happy, right? And I remember thinking, I'm 19, 20, like I'm, I'm 20, actually, at the time I was 21. And I'm like, this can't be my life, you know? Like, I, monas, you got to be brave. Be a, you want to, I've always wanted to be an athlete or, or at least just experience it. I didn't know, you have no guarantees you're going to be any good. I just wanted to go and be on the circuit for a bit. And so I plucked up the courage to tell him. And I, he was like, look, if you're going to do this, do it properly, son. Like, I, that was his advice. I, I think he was semi-disappointed. And when I left in the what, April of 95, I didn't come home, but I came home world number one. And the world championships that year, the end of 97, 98, were in Australia. And that was a big, we were going to the Olympics you know, the Olympic qualification, I was world number one within two years and I hadn't been home for two years. And uh, when I came back and we won our Perth World Championships were in November of 97 and the whole world was down here and it was all talk about Sydney Olympics and these events that Australia was dominating and triathlon was one of them. We had the best women in the world and myself and Welshie and Brad Bevan and that had just arrived as the best triathletes and I'd refined my swim. So I got my swim good. I was a really good bike rider technically because I'd grown up on mountain bikes and I was now living in France on the descents and my run was a weapon. So I was, you know, I won Worlds in 97 with my dad there with like 200,000 people on the, on the course in Perth. It was unbelievable. Live TV in Australia. And, and that was, I think, when my dad was like, shit. I said, dad, this is what I do. You know, like I'm going to win like an Olympics, man. Like I'm, I'm Monas. You know, I want to be Monas, mate. Yeah. And that was sort of the beginning of the whole, the whole journey to, and uh, yeah, I, I felt like I'd arrived. I was definitely a pro athlete then. Definitely had some a lot of international success, and I realised this sport was there was a lot of momentum behind this sport, and especially out of Australia, where the government was really throwing their support around that Australian cultural identity with successful sports at this Sydney Olympics. And 
backing the sports where they believed tri- Australia could win, and triathlon was one of those. And uh, so we're swimming and cycling, and, and but we were we were benefactors of of that 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 momentum and that wave. That must have been a pretty crazy experience for your old man, was it, when he watched you win the world champs? Uh, that was yeah, the eye opener yeah. for him, hey. That was the all right. He's uh, he's made the right choice moment. Yeah, I think I think he realised when you know he crossed the finish line and we're looking down the crowds. It was like the Tour de France. It's on YouTube. It was unbelievable. It was in Perth and it just. And the last mile, and I'm just running, I couldn't even see the finish line. And we hadn't won, Australia hadn't won a world championships for 12 years. And here I was the world number one, this young punk that was three years into the sport. And Welshie's behind me and we had world championships back in Australia. And I remember running at the crowd going, I don't want to miss this turn into the finish line. And I was just peeling out the way. And then I came around and they got the barricades back. And I remember turning into the finish straight and it was just, that was packed, man. And I could see at the end of it, they got my mum and dad out of the crowd oh. and to cross the finish line. I've crossed the line. I'm like, it was a static collapsed and I was in tears. Yeah. My dad picked me up and I said, this is, dad, this is what I do. And this is it. And he's like, oh, I have never been so proud of you. And that was <laughs> basically the, I've been, I guess I've been chasing this voice in my head for 18 months, two years. And that was sort of the, oh, I can relax. I've done the right, I've, I've made the right choice. Dad's happy with me. And, and now I'm going to, I want to try and be the best I can be at this. That is an unreal story, man. I can't imagine. See, as a as a junior, like my uh, my imagination would run wild. You'd picture your family up in an Olympic stadium, you coming around the home straight, and everyone going nuts. It's it's crazy that you get to live yeah. that. And uh, yeah, yeah I can only imagine, crazy. man. We had a we had a little man about nine months ago now, ten months ago, and already I'm like far out. I feel proud enough of him just as it is to imagine him doing anything more than yeah, you know yeah. just crawling around the house. I can't imagine how proud I'd be. So that'd be just a just a mind blow for for your mum and dad and. And what after that you um actually sorry before we go on I, I took a mental note to say to you before I don't know if you've listened to Matthew McConaughey's book at all but um a random pivot but man he's got this story where his old man sounds a little bit like what yours was he's like no nah, it's about education it's about hard work and it's about just doing the best you can um you know in this world that I understand as your parent and uh, he said mate he was shitting himself because. Uh, he decided that he wanted to go into acting. He decided that this is going to be the world for him. And his dad just didn't get it. And he said he, he mustered up the courage one day just to give him a call. He goes, all right, dad, like I've been scared to tell you, but this is what I'm going to do. And his old mate goes, his old man goes, all right, mate, well, don't half-ass it. And uh, he goes, it was just the it was just the tick of approval. Like, all right, if you're going to do it, let's just go for it. And uh, yeah, I reckon I reckon that'd be a pretty pretty powerful thing to get the uh, the bloke who you're most scared about telling on your side. Yeah, you just don't, I think, yeah, you don't want them to be disappointed because you, you, your intentions are right. And I guess I see, you know, now I've got kids. I can, I understand where dad's coming from. You just want the best for your children and the unknown is is scary. So you're always prepared to bet the safe option, you know, go, but, you know, I, I think, yeah, I think, he, I think I was able to show dad that pursuing a passion, pursuing, pursuing something that intrigued me and fascinated me that he brought into my life through running. You know, that's what I remember saying to dad. I'm like, dad, you brought me to sport. You brought me into this. I, I love what I do. I, like, I, I absolutely love it. And most people you've always told me don't love what they do. And you, you've always encouraged me to pursue what I love. This is what I love. And forget the outcome. I don't care if there's no money here. I just want to do this. And, and I'm, I'm, a good, I'm a good kid. I'm not going to jail. I'm not. And, and I understand the responsibility that, that I have to myself and my future. So I, I do. I'm not going to stuff this up and I'll, I will walk away at the right time. And, and I'm not just going to holiday for the next 15 years, dad, if this is not, if this doesn't go anywhere, I get it. I know your concerns and I won't let you down. And that was sort of the attitude I always push with dad. And he was super supportive. 
Yeah, awesome, man. And then, dude, I was uh, I was having a bit of a, as I said, I was I was having a bit of a, a read up on you and listening to a few podcasts just to try and get my head around. But one of the um one of the stories that stood out to me that I love that I was hoping you could tell was was how you got in contact with the uh, with the blokes from Under Armour because I thought it was both a funny story and oh, also okay. one of those moments where it was like, okay, this was just clearly a story which was meant to be. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's the lucky thing about triathlon. Like, oh, Kevin Plank. He, he, he started under Armour. He's, I, I call him a close friend. He came to my wedding, you know, like it's amazing. You know, he's a multi-billionaire now. I <laughs> to Christmas every year. <laughs> but he's my age. He's a year older than me, Kevin. And, and I met him, uh, I met Kevin 2001 at, at an event in, in San Francisco called Escape from Alcatraz Triathlon. Big Amer- Americans do, yeah, everyone knows Americans. Americans do events. They live in their own bubble a little bit. <laughs> And this is the biggest event in the world, Escape from Alcatraz. <laughs> it's not the biggest event in the world. In America, it's a big event. And, um, and it's live on CBS and NBC television, and it's a huge race. Anyway, so I've done the, I used to go every year because every sponsor used to make you want to go there because that and Hawaii were big races. And I'd won it a few years in a row. Anyway, after the race, I've won it. And I'm sitting down. They always have these big things. And I was waiting for my wife, or my girlfriend at the time, because she's now my wife. And... Um, and I was sitting just on the grass and, and I'm chatting away and I saw these two guys, three guys sitting with me, sitting on the grass next to me, eating their food from the free truck that you get free food post finish line. I'm hey guys, how'd it go? I just, and they were all eager to talk, you know. I didn't know who they were, they were just young like my age. We got chatting, they're like, oh, first triathlon, and I'm like, oh mate, how'd you think? What happened? And at that time they started the presentation and we're just talking about their race and what they thought of the climbs and what they thought of the run very it's a really difficult race and they've got a really big sand ladder and they're telling me about their experience on this 500 meter soft sand ladder section of the run and um and anyway the commentator's like and the winner is chris mccormack so i like, excuse me guys i go up on stage do my speech and i come back down and kevin and and and, and ryan ryan's his business partner in under armor are like shit dude like you won the whole race <laughs> i'm like yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i won the like, why didn't you why didn't you tell us we feel like dickheads. Like, <laughs> oh, no. oh, man, we're talking about your race. So it's, they're like, shit. And anyway, the guy he was with was a guy called Chip Adams. And Chip was at that point funding Under Armour. He was their first investor to help Under Armour become, this was pre Under Armour going public. And uh, Kevin's like, oh, Ryan actually, Chip and Ryan said, Do you know who this, do you know who we are? I said, No. And they had Under Armour. I said, No. I said, Oh, we own Under Armour. I'd never heard of it. I was like, Oh, okay. I said, oh, okay, I'm Chris McCormack. I'm from... So you've never heard of under? I said, no, it's a deodorant. I thought it was deodorant. <laughs> yeah. And um, I was like, oh, you're deodorant. And this Chip Adams, who was there, cracked up. Like, ah. And Kevin sort of semi took it the wrong way. Like, I can't believe you. If you watch American football, I'm like, not really, mate. No, no, I don't. You know, and they were shocked. And they're like, look, man, if you're ever in Baltimore, here's my card. You know, stay in touch. You've got to come up and say, under. I can't believe you don't know our brand. I said, okay, mate, you know, why is my bad? And he's like, mate, so we got on pretty well. We ended up going for lunch and uh, we stayed in touch. And I was in New York the following year. And I used to email Kevin all the time. And I said, mate, I'm in New York. He said, mate, come down to Baltimore, get on the train, come down to Baltimore, I'll put you up at the Four Seasons and you're coming to Underarm. I want you to come. So, okay. And I remember saying to my agent, oh, mate, we're in New York. And I hadn't even told Scott, my agent, that I met these Underarm people. So we're in New York and... Uh, and I said, oh, mate, I'm going to Baltimore. I'm meeting this guy I met at Alcatraz last year, Kevin Plank. And Scott looked at me going, Kevin Plank, I know that name. I said, oh, he owns um, a, a, a clothing company called Under Armour. He's like, Under Armour, dude. I'm like, they're pretty big, man. Like, they're, they're, they're having a crack. 
Oh my God, they're in football. He's like, dude, they're in everything, mate. Like they're a new brand. They're about five or six years old, but they are on the up. They're cool. You know, like American footballers are using it. And so Scott came down and we met Kevin and Kevin toured us around the old underarm. They just bought the factory behind the sugar mill in on, on the right on Baltimore Harbor there. And, you know, I'd walk around and we went out for dinner with Kev and Kevin's like, what do you think? I said, I think you should sponsor me, mate. And they had not sponsored, they didn't sponsor a single athlete. I said, you're going to sponsor me, Kevin. I'm your first ever. So I became Under Armour's first ever sponsored athlete. And I was with them from 2002 all the way through my career. I got a life deal. I still, still sponsored by Under Armour. Till is that right? That is such a good story, man. I was laughing listening to you tell that story. It's just, yeah, just the chance of bumping into him. Uh, to, well, to... I, call, I call Kevin a close friend. Amazing, amazing story. Like that guy. Like we always see it in sport and we talk about hard work and 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 focus on a goal and 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 all that stuff from a sporting perspective. But when you see a, an individual do that from the ground up from for a company, I I have it's the same work ethic, man. Like they work and work and work and drive and push and inspire and bring people with them. It's amazing to watch the the evolution of that company. It's I'm so proud of them. Like it's, it's a, funny, man. It's, it's part cr- of that journey the whole way along. Like me, Michael Phelps. You know, John St. George St. Pierre, like we prior to the Rio Olympics, we're in Brazil together, opening Under Armour shops, flying the private plane, going, Kev, man, like you've you're a billionaire, dude. Like you're just us. And and he's your mate, you know what I mean? That is so strange. That is so so you and the rock, eh? You and the rock. You and the rock. Well, the rock came later. It was used to be big E. They were always heavy in um in in movies and stuff, but they're the rock, they they moved into that big movie scene but, but back in the early days it was very very athlete specific very american football but phelps he came along which i got on well with michael and george st pierre at the height of his career came along and then they brought canelo alvarez a lot of the boxers eric morales and i'm a big boxing fan so i used to go to all the super bowls i used to go to everything with kevin but flying the private jet the under armor jet just from from meeting a guy at a triathlon and i've always said triathlon I've been very, very lucky in triathlon because it's a very community-driven sport because you bring three different sports together and and it's very inclusive. It's a very inclusive sport. No one's judging you if you're the slowest or the fastest. And I guess it's like fun running to some degree, but the demographic, the individuals that tend to move, migrate to triathlon as they age are very successful business people. They sort of build these big businesses and, and they're highly competitive individuals and they find solace in triathlon because there's such a great age group structure around the world where you can compete and compare yourself with others and and it's an amazing community and i was definitely a benefactor of being a one of the top athletes during that period of time and yeah what, what a story man Macca, so it's uh, it's interesting just talking about the massive success that you had in the um you know the i guess the sprint distance triathlon the uh, the itu sort of distance but what, what inspired the move? Because I, I sort of know you now coming in a little bit later. I know you as, as the Kona man. I know you as the uh, okay, as yeah. the real as the real Iron Man. So what's uh, what was the what was the transition into into the the, the real long stuff? Yeah, I think the my, I, I I was I went through. I guess everyone has a national federation story, to some degree. I, you know, so I I was always relatively um in, in I was world number one through 1997, 98. I dropped a couple of times, but 99, I was moved back up to world number one ranking. And I was living at that time in, in France. And uh, I used to do my summers in, in South Africa. And I used to just come back to Australia for, for the national series here, which was eight weeks of racing, right? So I, I didn't spend a lot of time in Australia. And at that point, they were really starting to pivot these high-performance structures, high-performance programs, which triathlon had never known before or done. 
it was our first ever Olympics, at least running and swimming probably had years and years of experience of high performance camp, but triathletes were always sole, sole traders doing their own thing and coming together at, a, at the end of the year. And, and it was just coming together for world championships or world cups, but it was all based on if you're good enough, when you start to bring Olympic qualification in and limited, there's all discretionary selection yeah. and all this ass kissing <clears throat> stuff you have to go on and do. And, um, I just, I was just not my cup of tea doing that stuff. And I, my mother passed away. So I won the uh, Sydney test event or the, 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 the Olympic test event, um, not the test event in Sydney, but I won the Olympic trials in, in Japan in uh, April of 2000. Um, the first event, my mother passed away three weeks later. And there was another test event, which was in Sydney, which was five months before the game. So my mum passed. I didn't race the test event in Sydney. I didn't read the qualification criteria. I just thought, look, I'm world number one. I've won the first thing. You're going to pick me, right? And I did, because I didn't race the Sydney event and they forced me to race an event in Mooloola on Mother's Day on May 13 that year. And, um, and they opted they, they opted to not select me for Sydney, even though I was, well, it, was the, it was the biggest news, myself and Emma Carney, yes. it was the biggest news in, in and I was devastated. And, and, and looking back now, I do get it, you know, you're, four months before an Olympics. And there's a young triathlete right now from America, Katie Zafaris. She's the world champion, world number one. She just lost her father four weeks ago. It's literally identical to the prep that I had. And, and she's about to be selected. The question marks whether she should be selected for the British, the American team at the moment. I think she should be, right? But there's a lot of talk about her mindset. And so I understand it because I was a mess. When my mother passed, I was a mess. Right? And... Uh, and so they opted, they didn't think I had the right. And, and we're not talking about, and the other thing I could give them credit for, which at the time I couldn't, the guys behind me that they picked ahead of me weren't like 100th in the world. I was number one, but these guys were number three, five, you know what I mean? So they were, they were warranted, they had every right to be on that Olympic team in their own right. On any other day, they probably would have beat me. But so they didn't think I was in the right headspace and the, the arsenal they had to, to fill my gap was strong. And so they put me as first reserve. And I took that, I, I took that as a real slap in the face. And so I went up yours. Yeah. Not even coming back for Sydney and um, stayed in the States with my wife. And then I, I was determined in 2001 to whoever won the Olympics, who was a good friend of mine. So I was going to go everywhere in the world and just smash him every race. Right? <laughs> and then every time I got an, every time I got the microphone, I was going to blame my federation, which I did. So in 2001, I had my greatest ever year. I won everything. Like, I mean, everything. And I, I had worlds won, but I crashed on the bike. I was two minutes front on the bike, but I crashed in slippery conditions in Canada, but I won Goodwill games. I was world number one. I won the world cup series again, won four, you know, I just, and, on the receiving end of that was a good friend of mine called Simon Whitfield, who was the Olympic champion. And I just, every race, I used to beat him. And then Triathlon Australia came back into my life and uh, said, look, we made a big mistake with, with um, Sydney. We fixed that. It was our first ever Olympics. We're moving towards Athens now. Come across and look at the Athens course with us. It'll suit you and you do it. And, um, and you know, come back into the fold, leave America and come back to train with us. And Commonwealth Games were coming up in Manchester and I'd already been pre-selected for Com Games. So they're like, look, you're in the Commonwealth Games. We'll prep for that. And, uh, but you need to move back. Let's go down the AIS. I'm like, I'm not moving back to Australia. Like I'm, I'm winning races from here. I'm not, I'm not moving my base. I've got my coaches, my swim squads, my, like, aren't you supposed to support my journey? Not recreate, you know, create. And 
And Bill Daverin at the time, who was the new head of triathlon Australia, said, well, Maka, what are you going to do? You either come back, I know you want to win the Olympics, you either come back for Athens, or what are you going to do? I mean, like, you're 28 years of age. You've got, you're too young, 27 old, and you're too young. And I said, well, mate, pick me for Athens now because I do not want to go through the same shit you put me through. You know, I know I'm not in the right headspace discretionary selection because you don't feel like I'm worthy of it. Pick me and let me prep and just leave me the hell alone. And I will, I want to win the Olympics. So you have to trust that my goals are aligned with your goals, right? Like I'm not, if I make the Olympics, I'm taking it serious. It's my life. And they said, look, we can't do that. You have to come into the fire. We have a system. And I said, stuff you're going to do, I'm in. So I, they laughed because they had all my <laughs> testing data. <And> my <laughs> testing data, I was never built to do Ironman, but there was nowhere else to go. You either did the ITU stuff or you did Ironman. And now they have a half Ironman series around the world that's really, really big. But back then, you, it was either full distance or ITU, which was the Olympic distance. And I basically did Commonwealth Games. I did my first Ironman in April of 2002. So I'm having this conversation at the end of 2001 with the National Federation. They challenged me, I guess, said you either do it our way or you got nowhere to go. So I entered Ironman Australia. I said, I'll tell you where I'm going. And I went, and so I won my first Ironman on debut, which no Australian had done. We won it for the first time in tour and I went down this Ironman path. But my, my goal was, you know, ignorantly thinking youth, youthful ignorance was, I'll go and win Ironman Hawaii this year. That was my headspace. <laughs> like I had no idea how hard the time <laughs> It's like a 5K running going, I'll go and win uh, London Marathon. Then I'll come back and it's like, and so I got, and obviously I won Ironman Australia, which was the hardest thing I'd ever done at the time, but I won it. So you just don't really check things. You know, when you win, sometimes you don't, you don't thoroughly break down an event. You, the win hides a lot of the errors you may have made because you, you hide behind the win. And so looking back, even though I won this race and I beat the world champion, I was first time an Australian had won in, Ironman Australia for 12 years and it was big back then because there used to be 10 Ironmans in the world so winning an Ironman meant something now there's 200 of the bastards there's an Ironman on every they're everywhere you know the sports exploded but back then to win an Ironman you you could back a year on that sponsorship and everything so I've gone out one Ironman Australia on debut and I've come off the ITU as world number one so I'm the first world number one to win an Ironman so I'm going to Kona thinking ah mate 2002 I win Hawaii like and then I'm going to come back and win the Olympics in Athens it's going to be a no-brainer and I got to Hawaii and I'd never, man, in my life experienced an event like that. It was frigging hot, windy. I was inexperienced, dumb and hollow, man. Like I did not have the courage, the commitment, the strength of character to be successful in an event. It's like a, probably a marathoner experienced their first major championship marathon. Like it's no joke. You know, you're like what you think is happening, what your preconceived ideas of it are versus the reality of the situation. I was heavily exposed. I had a 13-minute lead off the bike, thinking these guys suck. <laughs> I high-fived my dad as I ran out of transition, thinking I'm about to win Kona. I'm going to be like Greg Welsh, my first attempt. And my, my 10 miles I was walking at 21K, I was out. I, oh. It was horrific, horrific experience. But oh, that so, was... yeah. That sorry, Mark, I'm sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say 21K, you were out of the race. 21K, I stepped off. Yeah, I was in agony. I was in buckled, cramping, dehydrated. And it was humiliating, like humiliating, because I, I honestly had this semi sense of invincibility. I hadn't lost a triathlon in three years. I hadn't lost a race. I've been, according to myself and, and everyone now, you know, unfairly non-selected for the Sydney Olympic Games, right? 
And so I had a chip on my shoulder, a major chip. I'm young enough to carry that chip. Nowadays, I'd be like, oh, whatever. But back at that point, it, I felt that that defined me and I felt like I'd left, let my mother down because I'd promised her that on her deathbed. And, and uh, so I, I guess I walked into Kona with a bit of arrogance saying what I just said to you. I said, oh, look, I'm going to, you know, just one Ironman Australia. I'll try and I'll win this one this year or next year. And so the, the guys that are doing Kona, they're like, who's this upstart little shit? <laughs> you know, that's probably how I came off looking at it now. And I look back and I cringe a bit and they were happy to see me humiliated as I was running up Polani Hill, which is a famous climb on the world championship course in Kona. Tony DeBoom, who is the brother of the world champion at that time, Timothy DeBoom, who was an American, you know, and the Americans had won in 2001. It was post 9-11. So they were very proud of this American dominance of this event. And I've come in this upstart Australian in 2002 going, oh, I'm going to win this thing. You know, semi-disrespecting their, their guy that won the last two. I'm like, ah, oh. because I'd raced him in 10 races and kicked his ass. So I mean, I had Tim DeBoom in and he ate, beat, beat me up. And I remember coming up Polani Hill and his brother said, as I was walking and his brother was telling Tim was about to pass me. Given I gave up a 13 minute lead in 10 miles. He, um, he said, welcome to Kona, punk. You know, like uh, I, I'd really ruffled some feathers. So it was a, it was a very humiliating oh. time. I didn't mean to ruffle feathers, feathers <laughs> but it was that chip on my shoulder that I guess I magnified in my own desire to prove a point to triathlon Australia. But I guess I rubbed other people the wrong way too. So, and Kona became a puzzle of mine that took me, it basically my whole career went that way and I turned my back on the Olympics to conquer it. Far out, Macca. So how many years was it? Because I know there's a bit of a story here. Was it four, your fourth or fifth year that you... That yeah, you... Yeah, so you, and, and the story, you got to, the thing that become once you go down this Kona path in triathlon, it, 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 it's like everything else is forgotten. Like, yeah, yeah, I don't know if that happens in athletics and marathoning, you know, you, so, athletics seems to have more of a deep history. So you, you respect this transition up. The triathlon at that time, ITU and Olympics sort of sat, it was like an, another sport. And then Ironman was its own sport. And to some degree, triathlon still exists that, that way. Ironman is, most people now associate triathlon with Ironman. And they probably really don't know what's happening on the Olympic side of things, right? And uh, so once you start down this Ironman path, it's it's in, it's it's all encompassing. And and I did think I was going to win. So 2002, I didn't finish. Then I learned the hard way that not finishing an Ironman, it's probably like not finishing an, a marathon, you get criticised. It's like, mate, no matter what, you walk, you get to the finish. It's about finishing. And I'm like, yeah, but I want to race next week. But the community of Ironman, it's about you finish. And no matter what, you walk to the line. So I learned my lesson that one because I got deeply criticised for not finishing. And so in 2003, I thought, okay, I won Ironman Australia again. And I started down this path and I went to Kona again and failed. I, I finished 32nd, again, led off the bike, crumbled on the marathon, ran a 319 marathon to, to the walk to the finish, 32nd place. And I was, again, I, and, and what makes it the momentum of this, the only race I lost every year was Kona. This is why it became such a big thing in my story was I would win European champs, world records, then Kona fail, you know, and it was a, and, and triathlon Australia had done all this testing with me down at the Australian Institute of Sport. And they'd always said I could never be an Ironman athlete. I was too heavy, too big. I'm a 74 kilo racer. It's, I just had too much surface area to handle those sort of conditions. And that was sort of like this, this carrot in front of me to prove them wrong. Cause they were the, to me, they were the, they were my antithesis. They were my enemy at, at that point. In my head, triathlon Australia, that's who I focused my anger on in order to get me out of bed every morning. And so then 2005, I finished sixth, um, but ran a pretty good marathon. In 2006, I finished second. 
And so I got there after the fourth year and second was still, you know, but it's great to come second, but in, in my sport, you have to win it. And I, mm. and suddenly you go from, I always tell the young kids now, if they're calling you a talent, it's because you haven't won anything. You're called champions of champions because they win events. So there was all this talk about Maca being this Ironman talent, but I hated being called a talent because in my head, a talent is just someone who doesn't win anything. Oh, he's talented because if you, if, if they don't call you a talent, they kind of call you a champion because you're obviously winning things. So I yeah. wanted to be the champion and I was sick of being called a talent. I used to call people, I'm not a talent. I'm, a, I'm an athlete. I'm not ta- they're all talented. Stop calling me a talented thing. And I could tell that, that the sport was starting to think, I don't think this guy's going to do it. So it took me the fifth attempt to, to finally win it in 07. And uh, it was tiring. It was, a, it was a long, arduous journey. But Jeez. yeah, Ironman consumed me I was for, for years after that. And so I went and watched Athens and went and watched Beijing and became a fan of, of, of ITU. And but at that point, which is probably why you know me as an Ironman athlete, I, I was well and truly on the Ironman circuit. And, and luckily for me, like ITU, Ironman started really growing up. We got bought by private equity and I was the champion of it. And I had enough, um, I guess, the way I spoke and I guess my, my hostilities at times towards some of my peers. I was the stupid guy that said the stupid things. You know? <laughs> You think you'll win? Yeah, I'm going to win. I'll kick his ass. And the Americans love that. So they created a villain, uh, not a villain, but I was, I was, and I was happy to play that character because I, I needed that type of uh, pressure on myself to make me wake up at 5.30 for swimming, to make me wake up. So I, I sort of benefited from the rivalries that I was able to create first with Norman Stadler and the Germans, or firstly with the Americans when I first came across, then with Norman Stadler, and then ultimately with Craig Alexander and, and Pete Jacobs, and then I, I retired. Jeez, man. It sounds like you were bloody good at racing with frustration, racing with angry, like uh, racing with anger. Cause I always noticed that myself when I was out on a track, if my wife and I had had an argument before I went out, I was the opposite. I seemed to be like, oh, I just need to solve this before I, before I go out and focus. I just, I couldn't put my mind on the track very well, but I, I don't know, maybe it was because it was so close to home, but it's interesting how that anger of yeah. the Federation seemed to drive you and the anger and the, uh, that caused by the criticism or the, what do you say? The, the people yeah. talking about your your lack of ability to win just seemed to, to be that thing that that really got I, you up I in the morning. That. Yeah, I, I needed that. I know that it's I still have that in my life. I need a challenge. I need to put a goal out there. I need to vocalize that goal because I need to make it real. If I don't, I always find if you don't vocalize it, you don't put it out to the universe, then you don't really believe it yourself. Now, mm. I, I never realized it was just my way of doing things. When I'd say people say, Oh, how do you think you're gonna go up world champs this year? I said, Well. I don't spend 18 weeks away from my family to have a holiday, man. Hawaii is a nice spot, but I'm going to win the frigging thing. Yeah. Oh, what about this guy? Mate, and I would say, how's he going to beat me? Because I was, so I was as much talking to myself as I was. That's all. Yeah, and then that's social awesome. media and everything came out and everyone got to see what you say. Back in the day, it was an interview <laughs> and someone would write the letter. It was social media. I was like, far out. <laughs> so then my peers would text me going, you're a dickhead. Well, what would you say that about me? I'm like, I didn't, I was just talking to a guy, you know, like I was, Oh, like I still think you're a nice guy, but yeah, I do think I can outswim you. Yeah? I do think, I, well, do you think I don't think that in my head? I just don't verbalize. <laughs> of course you must think that about me. Like I, it's no hard feelings, but a lot of people took that the wrong way. A lot of my peers. And then I realized it would upset them. And I realized there's a lot of power in, in getting into people's heads, creating self-doubt and, and, and being that alpha male. I think there's a lot of power in that. And, and Lance Armstrong showed me that following his career i know he did other things but he was really that alpha male in the and we knew lance from triathlon for years and watching how he came into that cycling sect 
came into that to a peloton and ran the peloton with his presence there's a lot of in, semi-intimidation he did it he went overboard but there, there is a lot of question marks and we all know it as athletes that you, you your biggest competitor is yourself because you know all the you know all your inferiorities right you know where you are weak you know you try and charade that you've got none right to the public and to your peers but you know deep inside that you're carrying an injury or you're not running as good or or he's good in hot weather and you're not and you're suspect you're a bit you know so but we all try to pretend that that doesn't exist yeah and i was so i used to always call my peers weaknesses out because i knew what they were and i'm pretty confident they knew what they were so i'd highlight them trying to make it make them second guess themselves because in ironman racing physicality is yeah you go, everyone's physically fit everyone's there it's all your ability to suffer and your ability to go deep into the well because you're not moving quick we're running a 240 marathon mate like it's it's four minutes a k and a little quicker 355 per k so everyone can do it you're just in agony doing it and you're in you're, you're depleted of fuel you've just got to keep putting one foot in front of the other and all you're having is this shitty conversation with yourself for hours on fighting that desire to stop, you know, like, and so if you can create self-doubt, I always thought in my peer where they're like, oh, Mac is good. He told me it's going to happen. And I used to say it, you're going to run out of the energy lab, Crowley, and I'm going to be five minutes in front of you. And I'm going to drop you like a bad habit because I always have, I did it in training my whole life. I did it as an athlete since we were juniors. You're not good enough to beat me. And you know it and I know it right That's i was just awesome. saying that bravado <laughs> as bravado like i, I was it. scared to death of craig alexander and scared to death of but i just thought if i could just look like i wasn't I, i've been in that position when i'm stripped emotionally and physically and stripped at the end of a, of a major endurance event and i'm in and it's those bubbling negativities that shape the race it's not physicality anymore it's not whether i did that track set or whether i've done another long run no, that's all out the door. You're ugly. You're really ugly moving. And it's just <laughs> headspace. And it's about being able to deal with those conversations. And I, I found the best way was to, to try and call my peers out and, and then live that, live that sort of, I guess, self-fulfilling prophecy. You are the man. You can do this. You're better than him. And that was the motivation I got from grit, I guess. I, I liked anger and liked, um, I liked challenging my peers. That is I liked awesome. Street fight, I guess. Yeah. That is so good. I, I had Emma Carney on here last week. And one thing that she said to me that I was laughing at, just because I love that she said it and just said it so casually, she was talking about how in the 90s, like triathletes around Australia were pretty well known. And she was about, oh, you might've been on the team. I don't know. Uh, she was about to get on a plane. She was about to get on uh, a plane to go to Europe. And the, the lady who was checking the flight in said, hey, Emma, I recognize you. Um, the plane's a little bit empty. I'm going to give you the sheet of paper of all the passengers on here and I'm going to upgrade you to first class and I'm also going to upgrade any of the women any of the team that you want to be in first class with you and she goes oh that's nice awesome so she got the sheet of paper they're all going over to race and she said uh she goes I got that piece of paper and a highlighter she goes you know what I'm trying to beat these women yeah, she goes, yeah, yeah, so yeah. I upgraded the whole men's team and I just left all the other girls in economy just so <laughs> when they, that. Just when they were, we'll go to Japan, man. And, and we all got upgraded. It was on the top deck. It was, and, and the only woman that got upgraded was Sean Welsh, which is Greg Welsh's wife. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was awesome. Yeah. Uh, Emma was hardcore, man. Like, I got that really vibe, man. I really liked man. talking to her, but uh, I was like, mate, I would have been so scared being on her wrong side. And oh, I said this to her, I got, I just, I would have been terrified lining up against you. She's like, yeah, that's what I wanted. <laughs> she was tough. She was just a hard woman. And, and that whole Australian era, she, Keely Jones was sort of at the forefront of it, but 
Emma came along with Claire and we had Loretta Harrop and and that was they were just a tough generation of women. Like I mean, their physicality, their their grit and 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 I'm not going to semi animosity towards each other. There was a crowded. It, what I think they struggle with was not only were you fighting to be the best in the world, but you couldn't even call yourself the best in your country. You, you know what I mean? Like you could be the you're the fifth best in, in Australia, but you're the fifth best in the world on the women's side. So they're like, oh, you're not even, you can't even win an Australian title. Like, it was, they were just, it was, I remember 99 worlds, the Australian women's team went first, second, third, fourth, fifth at the world championships. It was amazing. That's incredible, man. Maka, I could talk to you all day, but my lovely wife asked her to go for a walk for an hour while we had a chat. And she's been nice. She's standing out here in the cold with my little man. And I've, I've been trying to tell her to come in and quietly go upstairs for the last 10 minutes, but she can't see me waving my arms. So, Maka, I might, mate, I, as I said, I'll, I could talk to you all day and appreciate how much time you've made. But just so my marriage isn't on the rocks for the rest of this public Get holiday. Yeah. Mate, that was that was really, really enjoyable. And hey, you're always welcome. If you ever want to come back for a chat, let's do part two because there's 15 different directions I could have taken it. Too easy. Anytime. Lovely. Hey, Get out you're legend, Macca. And, uh, enjoy the long weekend. The hey, yeah, right back at you. See you, man. Thanks again. Okay. Cheers. See you, brother. Bye.